Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And be sure to add fading memories in the how did you hear about Podgo section of the application. Visual storytelling can help make complex stories easier to understand and as a result, deliver a more impactful message. Why would someone choose to document visually such a difficult subject like dementia? There are as many answers to this as there are caregivers. For some, it's a way to process what they're going through. Whether this is the caregiver's journey or how to process grief, visual storytelling is a therapeutic process for many. The most important reason for telling the story of Alzheimer's or dementia through a visual medium is to show others what our caregiving journey truly consists of on a daily basis. My guest in this episode is instrumental in making these stories possible through the Bob and Diane Fund. Tune in to hear about her caregiving journey and how that led her to funding visual storytellers. This episode is brought to you by Caregiver Chronicles, an eight-week online course from diagnosis through hospice. For more information, use the link in the show notes. Welcome to Fading Memories, a supportive podcast for those caring for a loved one with memory loss. My guest today is Gina Martin. She is the founder and CEO of the Bob and Diane Fund. The Bob and Diane Fund is an award she created in honor of her parents. Her hope is for people to understand that Alzheimer's is more than just memory loss and to recognize the heavy toll it takes on the caregiver and family. Her parents taught her the importance of giving, and this is her gift to them. Thank you for joining me, Gina. Thank you for having me. Gina is with the Bob and Diane Fund. And we're going to talk about that shortly. But first, I thought Gina could tell us about your family's caregiving journey. Yes. Well, thank you. So my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when she was 65 years old, which was, I think, in 2006. And her and my father were high school sweethearts, happily married for at the time of her passing, almost 50 years. I live in Washington, DC. They lived in California where my other siblings lived. And we're a pretty close family. And when she was diagnosed, I remember the doctors telling my dad that he saw shrinkage of the brain, which we all know is the signs of Alzheimer's or dementia. And we all kind of um, came together to help him and plan how to care for her. And he was her sole caregiver through her entire five-year illness. And I say five-year illness because that really is not that long to live with the disease. We were, I, I tend to say thankful, but my siblings don't. She had gotten cancer 
and was given maybe three months, but died about seven weeks later. So that is why she didn't live as long with Alzheimer's. My dad was her sole caregiver and he was just getting to the point where he wanted to put her into a home. And this was in September when she was diagnosed with cancer and he had just been thinking about putting her in, in the next month or two. So that changed those plans. And we all agreed to keep her at home, which was still him taking care of her, but it was only for, you know, another month and a half or so. It's hard to say that I was a caregiver 3000 miles away, but I like to think that I was because I was very involved with their lives and talked to them every day. And I flew home once a month. Unfortunately, it was all mostly put on my dad. So that was our family experience with caregiving. Well, flying cross country on monthly, especially nowadays when we yes. don't do that at all. Well, you just did, but for the most part, most of us aren't haven't flown for quite some time. Yeah, it was definitely pre-pandemic. She passed in 2011 and I had a very understanding boss who just let me work remotely from California. So I was there probably eight days every month and felt very involved in her daily care and doctor's appointments and all of that. And just to kind of follow up on the caregiving role, as most people know who have been through it, you really what's hardest is on the caregiver than the person living with the disease. And my dad had a bad heart. He had rheumatic fever when he was nine. So his heart was never a hundred percent. During my mother's illness, we were quite concerned about him more. We always tried to make sure he had a day off with my mom to go golf and made sure we, he took care of himself. After she passed on October 31st, 2011, just three months later on his 71st birthday, which was their first birthday, not together since they were 17 or 18. He was out to dinner with my brother and had dinner and dessert and they brought him a cake. He made a wish. He blew out the candle and he dropped dead of a heart attack within the hour. I mean, that also says something about what the stress of caregiving is on the caregiver but it was also the perfect ending to their 50 plus relationship where he obviously wanted to be with her. That was his birthday wish. I was just thinking that I was like, do I ask if you wonder what the wish was, but yeah, apparently yeah. you thought about that back up a half step. Okay. That he was considering putting her in a care residence. Mm-hmm. What was the catalyst of that thought process? Cause I know a lot yeah. of people struggle with, with that? I'm trying to think if there was actually a catalyst. He was pretty much able to care for her. We were fortunate in the fact that she still remembered who we were when she passed and she never got violent. She got angry a couple of times, but nothing too bad. And he did experience once, which he had never experienced before. She had a seizure. Mm. Uh, And that made him nervous. He ended up having someone come into the home. I'm trying to think if it was daily or maybe a few times a week. I can't remember for maybe eight hours. She fought that. She did not think she needed that. But what we said was, remember that seizure you had, this is the doctor said we had to have this. And then she's like, oh, okay. But it was nothing, not that I can think of. 
I think maybe he just thought she was only going to get worse and knew what his limits were. I think that's what kind of prompted it. And it was only maybe two miles away from them. So it was close, but it was going to be a very hard decision. It always is. Yes, it always is. And it's expensive. That doesn't help at all. No. But a lot of caregivers I've talked to, ones that are part of my support group, what I've noticed is you get sucked in. It's almost like quicksand. You're helping like for you and me and my sister for some part. You're helping your parent take care of your other parent. And then like my dad passed away with no conversation whatsoever about what we would do with my mother if he Mm. went first, which since he had diabetes and he had all kinds of chronic issues. issues. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely, you know, a conversation we should have had. So I'm a huge advocate of having these conversations. They're very difficult to start, but I think most people find that, You've had these conversations and, you know, they're not a warm, fuzzy feeling, but you come away a little bit relieved, like, okay, I understand where they're coming from. They understand where I'm coming from. Now we can make plans or, oh, we agree. (laughs) Shocker. We agree on stuff, which not, that's not my family. (laughs) We actually um, did discuss what we would do if my dad went first, because like we said, he had a bad heart and my brother expressed interest in taking my mom and- which, you know, surprised us, but that's what he, you know, he felt at the time. And I tell all my friends to have these conversations, whether it's with Alzheimer's or cancer, or just old age, to have these conversations with your parents while they can financial conversations, where everything is, if they have a safe with the combination, because that was our problem. We always had these conversations growing up. My dad would say, if I go first, I want your mom to do this. And my mom would say the same thing. They told us they both wanted to be cremated. We were always very open about those things. And I really encourage my friends and others to do the same. It's so important. Do you feel that being open and understanding the technicalities, like what they wanted, the financial end, but also what their wishes and stuff were, did that make it less stressful to make decisions? A hundred percent. There you go, folks. One hundred percent. My brother, sister, and I got along during that whole process afterwards of what we were going to do with everything. Yes, completely. Probably when I was 49 or 50, I did a living trust well before I hopefully need to, but I'm a planner and I have in there, if I get Alzheimer's, what to do with me, everything. So I do believe in having these open conversations before you need to. And yeah, being honest about what's the future, especially when you have something like this in your family. Mm-hmm. Be prepared. Well, we're signing our trust today. Oh, good. (laughs) And it was funny because I just turned 54. My husband's 56. And, you know, going through all of the questions, we only have one daughter. Mm -hmm. And so when he said, well, what happens if something happens to your daughter before you guys? And it was like, oh, that's a really good question. But, But you you know, you don't think of these things uh -uh. because that's not the natural order of life. But it does happen. happen. Mm -hmm. My dad 
preceded his mother. My paternal grandmother is almost 103. Wow. My dad didn't make it to 78. So, you know, the, it was, it was great that he asked that question, but it was like, wow, Ooh, that's a yeah. hard question to answer. My husband joked, he goes, wow, I really feel like we're adulting, which is, a, <laughs> you know, it's one of those kids, th- millennial comments. So, yes. And I have an upcoming episode on an Alzheimer's living will. So you said, oh, you that's have, great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when that episode comes out, people can click on the link and order their own because we did talk about that as well, which was actually a learning experience for the trust attorney. So we all learned something. That day. Yes. Oh, I love that. <laughs> you have worked for National Geographic for probably longer than you want to admit. Oh, no, it will be 21 years in January. Awesome. One of my favorite publications. And because as a photographer, I just love Nat Geo photography. Tell me how you... Did, did you combine these two passions and that's how you started the fund? Exactly. Just, okay. So working for National Geographic, I mean, I loved photography well before that, but really started appreciating photography during my 21 year career. And I collect photography. I have a huge collection of prints and photography books. I have over 950 photography books. And I support photographers all the time. I had some extra money at the time. This was five or so years ago and was thinking of supporting some photographers with it. I was talking to a friend of mine about it and he said, why don't you start a grant related to Alzheimer's and dementia and name it after your mom? It just did not occur to me on my own. I don't know how that I didn't come up with that. And I loved that idea. For one, there's no grant like this out there. And there still isn't that supports projects related to Alzheimer's and dementia. But the other thing that I did is I wanted to name it after both of them because it Alzheimer's affected my father just as much as my mother. And as her caregiver, I just wanted to honor both of them. So the Bob and Diane fund was created in 2016 and we give a $5,000 grant once a year to a photographer working on a story related to Alzheimer's um, or dementia. I usually say Alzheimer's because that's what my mom had, but it's really, we cover all forms of dementia. The grant is to bring a visual awareness to this disease that so many people do not understand, as I know you know. Yeah. It's just, unless you are living with it or have experienced it in some way, you truly do not understand what the disease is. Most people think it is just forgetting people's names or forgetting to turn off the coffee maker. It is so much more than that. It's a complete personality change among so many other mental facilities. Uh, I want it to be bringing a visual awareness to a disease. It makes people understand it more, gives them more empathy for the people dealing with it. And it makes them want to care and then hopefully want to support financially to Alzheimer's organizations to help find a cure. Definitely. When you started in 2016, was it challenging to find photographers who are actually creating these kind of visual stories? Because I know myself as a family historian photographer and 
many people on social media, some of the younger caregivers, and I say that reluctantly, <laughs> but the ones that are in their 30s and 40s that grew up mm -hmm. with a lot more social media are less inhibited about showing the really negative side of the disease because, which is important. But, you know, for me, my mother would kill me if she knew what I'd put on the internet of her. I would get that mom look and I would be a pile of ash. I have another gal who's just slightly younger than me that one of the things that she posted a lot in her Instagram is her journey with her dad. She moved him into a care home in January. He's had the disease for 12 years, so he's definitely getting closer to the end of stages. She is sharing a lot less of that because she wants him to have his privacy and his mm -hmm. dignity, which I thoroughly understand and agree with. But it does make it difficult to share the more challenging side of the disease. Yeah. You know, when I started this, I had absolutely no idea if I was going to get five submissions a year or a thousand, not a clue. So when I started it, we were going to start submissions in August. And I was fortunate enough that timemagazine.com announced our grant. So they announced that it was going to be open to submissions, which was great. Our first year, we received over 70 and we always average about 25 countries, always anywhere between 22 and 27. I was really happy with, we average about that. This year we had um, 73 submissions from 27 countries. It's a perfect number for me to judge and all of that. But yeah, I didn't know. And again, it, this is work that already exists or is they're working on. It is not to start the work. So like I said, I didn't know what we were going to have at that point. So every project has been different. So not everyone is really documenting a parent in, in decline, like you mentioned. Some do. Our first year winner, Maya Daniels, in 2016 documented a hospital. It was the secure unit of a hospital for Alzheimer's. And there was not that many difficult images to look at, except where they were standing at the door waiting for their loved ones. And I don't mean that that's not difficult, but I mean ones where it was maybe not seeing them in a respectful light. The second year, Chris Nunn, he documented a, a friend of his who he met, who was an artist in the town he lived in. And the third year, Stephen Dorado did photograph his father, but Stephen had been documenting his father for 20 plus years with a large format camera well before he was ever ill from dementia. He'd always done um, portraits and self-portraits with his father beautiful. So when his father became ill, he just continued it as he always had just documenting his parents. Our last year's winner in 2019, Sophie Matheson, she documented her grandparents and did it in a beautiful way. There were some difficult moments with her grandmother, but it was all done very lovingly, I think. And then lastly, our new grantee for 2020, we just announced yesterday, he is from Iran, Jalal Shamzazarin, I think I'm pronouncing his last name right. And it is a lovely project on his father. He documented him in black and white, starting, I think, at, at the beginning of his illness, and he just recently passed away. The images are very 
They're gritty, but very tender and emotional as well. I think that he was able to document the disease and still respecting his father's dignity, privacy, um, to, to his, his death. And the way he photographed his death was more in kind of not abstract ways, but ways where it was like the empty picture frame or them driving to the cemetery. So those where you're not seeing the actual death, but you know that he has since passed on. Definitely. Now the first winner, I became aware of her because of an article in Apple News feed. My understanding is, is after documenting the the stress of looking through the windows mm-hmm. into a hallway that they couldn't get into, encouraged the hospital, this is in France, to put in different doors that didn't have windows. Is that true? Do you know, I have not heard that. I think that was, it's been, it's been many months might have been. That is so interesting. I think I they would... changed the doors so that it wasn't a forbidden portal to yes. the outside. That's, I think that's really important. And if that's the, I love that. I will research that. That is so interesting. Maya is Swedish, but she did this work in a hospital in Northern France and it was a protective unit and the patients would be kind of dressed up with holding their bags, waiting for a loved one to come pick them up as if they were leaving, but they weren't and pulling on the door and the door was locked and you could see the wear and tear on the door. It's just, it's a beautiful project, but it's difficult too. It's difficult to look at just seeing people kept in a protective unit. But again, I think she did it, did it beautifully and with a very tender touch to it. It was interesting, and I don't know if it was because it was France. It seemed very timeless. The way they were dressed didn't scream yes. the it 2000 was, whatevers. You're absolutely right. It, it was, and so was, I feel like our second grantee, Chris Nunn's work, feels very timeless to me. He'd met, the, met this gentleman, I think, in a grocery store, and he was a known painter in their area, and Chris must have known he'd been diagnosed with dementia and asked to document him. And he said, yes. And they worked together for quite a while and just did these beautiful portraits and moments where time just went by and he was able to document that. It's just beautiful. For everybody that would like to see these images, first off, you can see the current grantee on the YouTube channel. But you can also go to the Bob and Diane Funds website, which is linked in the show notes. And all of the past winners have galleries, which you can look at. And they are very, they're touching, they're, it's, they're documentary photography. They're not beautiful portraits all the time. And that's fine. And it's important. But Alzheimer's is not beautiful. No, not at all. Or dementia. Yes. But there are beautiful images and there's always, I mean, whether you have dementia or other diseases, there's always a beautiful moment that your loved one is having. And so it's just like the images, there are some beautiful moments in it. And there's other images that are difficult. But that's the honest truth of this disease. Now, have you seen any or talked to any people that have learned from these projects, they've seen them and they're like, wow, I didn't know. Are you seeing the Yes. The end result. Oh, great. So tell me about I, I that. I think so. I mean, 
I see the end result in my everyday life, which means so many people who I am connected to, which in the world of photography, it could be worldwide. So many people are more aware of Alzheimer's and dementia because people who I'm friends with on social, who I may not actually know, but (laughs) we're in the same community are always sending me things about Alzheimer's always. And I love that. I love that they do think of me when they read a story about Alzheimer's. So many people are always asking, how's the Bob and Diane doing? How's the Bob? So I love that people know my parents' name, but yes, I always read comments. So every year the Washington Post announces our winner. And I always read those comments and I've read so many where people say that how much it's touched them and how they didn't understand. And when I say I want to bring a visual awareness, especially to the world, but I also want to bring it to the lives of caregivers. So meaning for you, if though you're not a caregiver at this time, but when you were, your neighbor will now understand what you're going through and your coworker will understand because they don't get it in the way they interact with you. So yes, I want people in the world to understand it, but I also want the caregiver's immediate community to understand what that person is going through. I think that is so important. I would have some of my mom's friends say, oh, your mom hurt my feelings today, you know, and they call me about this. And if you don't have thick skin, do not call her because I can't take on that added stress of hearing about it. So you need to understand what it is that we are dealing with on a daily basis. The caregiver obviously needs support from the family, but also their community. Mm-hmm for their community to understand what they are going through. I do feel that these visual images help people understand that. I've talked to so many people that are essentially clueless and it's not Mm -hmm. because they don't care. It's just, it hasn't touched them or I'm assuming since your mom was only sick with Alzheimer's for five years and then got cancer, she didn't get into the later stages. No, I mean, she was, she was definitely declining. The Alzheimer's had definitely progressed, but like I said, she still knew who we were. I would say 75 to 80% of the time, once in a while, she did not know something. She didn't get into that really angry stage. She drifted off to the neighbors only twice, which wasn't too bad. You know, we knew how much worse it could get. So we were fortunate in that way that she didn't live longer with the disease. And I do feel that we were fortunate that she got cancer and had to, yeah. It's not a term you hear very often. (laughs) I know, I know. But when you are living with Alzheimer's, you well know. I was going to say, I'd read this recently and I thought it was so interesting. Between 2000 and 2018, deaths from heart disease have decreased 7.8%, while deaths from Alzheimer's have increased 146%. Yep. I think that is just shocking. It's ugly. And you're, you live in the DC, in DC, Mm -hmm. right now you're in California, 2020 aside, because obviously this year, we're not even going to discuss the, we're not going to discuss deaths this year. Alzheimer's can either be the second or third leading cause of death of Californians. Yeah. I, I, I do believe a lot of that is a function of population, bigger Mm -hmm. number of people. Obviously we're going to have more Alzheimer's and dementia. 
but yeah, it's it's the sixth leading cause sixth. of death nationwide. Yeah, which, and it's higher than breast cancer, pancreas. The three top three uh, cancers: breast cancer, prostate, and yeah, I think those two combined. Okay, maybe it's just the two. That's why I can't come up yeah. with the third. And then heart disease. We've done a great job on reducing heart disease, of coming up with therapies for cancers. And unfortunately, we all know lifestyle choices are very important yeah. in maintaining mm-hmm. our health. Yes. And say that two days before the biggest eating day of the year. Our winner is uh, based in Iran. Iran has 750,000 people living with the disease. You, you know, happen to know the population of Iran? I, I meant to look that up because someone else asked me that, but I thought it to me is still that's a lot 700, of 750,000 is too many. It's a disease that's worldwide, as I fa- have found when I get submissions from so many different countries. Like I said, this year was 27 different countries. And do you see a difference, like a cultural difference in how they document it? Or is it all fairly documentary style? It's not all documentary style. We definitely get some fine art approaches, portrait approaches. There's one project that's been submitted. It's just of flowers. And, you know, once I read the proposal, I understood it. Each flower represented something with dementia, but there was nobody with dementia in the images. I've received some different like art type projects that still have photography and like collages. And I tend to be drawn more to the documentary and fine art side of documenting this disease. I don't do the judging. I have two of our board members and we do one guest judge a year. Although this year with COVID, I had one judge, Jared Soros, who is a photojournalist based in Washington, DC. He came and judged the work and we wore our Bob and Diane fun masks. This year was a little different. This year is a little different, no matter what we're doing. Yes. Yes. (laughs) They have not yet been exhibited. This is our fifth year and I have had a couple of opportunities and I always said, I'm going to wait till maybe five years and then COVID happened. (laughs) But the grant is to help finish the work, to help get it published into a book form or to help exhibit it. So our third grantee, Stephen Dorado, did publish a book with dad with help of the grant, which was wonderful. And I think Jalal was hoping to publish this project into a book form, but yes, that is definitely on my radar in the next year or so. I would love to get this work exhibited. We've talked to us against Alzheimer's, maybe doing it at their yearly convention. I do want to say two other things that we give scholarships to non-Western photographers to attend photography workshops around the world. So we have done three where we pay their enrollment fee and airfare from Mexico, Bangladesh, and India to go to either, I think it was Kenya. And then there was a workshop in India. So we've done that, which has been great. And then they have to do a project on Alzheimer's for the week. Then last year was our first year where we did a photo contest called Still Living. And it was a contest for people living with the disease. You may think, how can that be? But there are people who live with it in the early stages where they are still 
functioning people in the community. And that is what we wanted to remind people that for still photography, that they are still living. They still have a voice. They still contribute. So we did, it was worldwide and we chose three winners, one in France and Canada, and then the U S and gave them a small financial prize. We had hoped to do it again, but with COVID, we knew that wasn't going to work with people in homes and caregiving homes. So we definitely want to do photo opportunities. One gentleman who was kind of a budding photographer had, had not picked up his camera in years and he did the photo contest and he wrote me and he was fine that he did not win. He just loved that he was able to pick up his camera again and it got him interested in photography again. That was a person living with dementia? Yes. I had an episode with the, I don't know if it's foundation is probably not the right word. It's a group called Make Grandma Smile. Hmm. Their goal is to improve senior activities in care communities. Yep. Because they don't seem to have modernized. My Mm -hmm. mom was 77 when she died this year. And they were playing big band music a lot, which she did like, but yes, that was not her era. Yeah. And we're getting to the point of the scary thought, you know, where the 60s and the 70s are going to be mm-hmm. the music and the cultural parts of the past. And one of the things he said was, thank God forbid, I get dementia or Alzheimer's. He would want to make sure that I would have a camera that I could use and just take pictures of whatever. He said, it doesn't have to be anything spectacular. It helps engage people. So they're not just around. Yeah. I can can see all these connections coming together. For that contest, the theme was what inspires you? What brings you joy? We got pictures of their pet. And one woman who lives with the disease, she started a kayak club. Hmm. It was a picture of her on her kayak from the tip of her kayak to a beautiful background or foreground. I just, I love that. There's another woman I met with the disease and she is definitely loves photography. I would call her maybe a little bit more than an amateur photographer and she loves hummingbirds and she goes out and photographs hummingbirds and other birds. And that keeps her stimulated and moving. I think that is so important. And there are some camera clubs within some organizations, and I would love to do more with that. That's camera clubs incorporating somebody in earlier to middle stages would actually be a really good community kind of outreach Mm -hmm. to do. My Mm -hmm. cycle club for a while, one of the gentlemen who lived near this particular residence would go and ride bikes with this gentleman because he had been an avid cycler and he was kind of a flight risk for lack of a better term, because I think you almost have muscle memory, like, Ooh, I got to get out on my bike. I'm a cyclist too. So I can kind of relate to that feeling. His children were still working. They were sandwich generation with their own kids and they would ride with him on the weekend, but he needed more stimulation. One gentleman in our club rode with him once a week. That's great. Also the kind of things people in the community can do to help caregivers, people living with Alzheimer's or dementia. And it's good for us too. You know, when we reach out to help somebody, we actually get quite a bit in return. Absolutely. 
Tell me about the gentleman from Ireland. So Paul John Bayfield, he's from the UK. I had met Paul at Geographic maybe a year before, and we had not really talked a lot. So I didn't really know his story. And last year he was at National Geographic and he and I sat and had a nice long conversation. He is in his thirties and was the sole caregiver of his mother who had Pick's disease. I could not imagine being the sole caregiver of my parent at that age. And Mm -mm. they didn't have family around. And I don't think they had a large network of friends in their area. He's a freelance photographer, but he couldn't afford to take jobs because if he left her, he had to pay to have someone come in. So his career was definitely affected by this. And I don't think they had much financial support from her social security or what have you. So I had talked to our board during that week when he was in town and suggested, can we help him out? We decided to give him a mentorship grant and Sarah Lean, the former director of photography for National Geographic Magazine, she was going to mentor him. He had submitted the project prior and it's a beautiful project. It just wasn't ready yet. She has been working with him, trying to get a little bit more intimate images with his mother and more of her things in her home and memorabilia stuff. And he'd been documenting almost every day since she was diagnosed. He had been traveling when she was diagnosed. He came home, they discussed what the disease was and what they're going to have to do. And he said, let's do this documentation together. And he's been documenting her from diagnosis on, and it is really beautifully done. Again, as her sole caregiver, I felt such empathy for him. I wanted to give him some financial relief. So we gave him a nice size grant so he could focus on that and focus on her. Unfortunately, she passed away this year, just recently in the last month and a half or so. But I should go back. She was in a rehab home right when COVID started. So they would not release her. They had to keep her in there and they were not financially prepared for that. So, you know, they had to make that work. And she definitely declined while she was in this home. She would not eat without Paul because it's just been the two of them. He's her only child. The, The nurses would call him and said, she's just not eating. He had her put near a window and he brought a table to the other side of the window outside a folding table a chair a tablecloth a little vase and he would bring a full meal not mcdonald's but he would have a plate utensils and eat his meal on the other side of the window so she would eat and she always ate when he did and he did portraits of them eating together through the glass window. It's just stunning. Mm -hmm. He's been getting wonderful acknowledgement and press of this work. We're still working on it. He's still working with Sarah and we want to continue the work. She has since passed, but continue the work of her belongings that he is going through. I think he's working towards getting it into a book form to help others with whether it's Pick's disease or other types of dementia, but he's been getting wonderful press and he's just a beautiful person and such a loving and caring son. When I met him, he had his arm in a sling because he had to shower her and they were in the shower together. And I don't know if he just fell or if they both fell, but when he fell, he broke his arm. It's just, it's, 
a sad story, but also a beautiful story of their relationship and how he was able to do this project with her until the very end. But it's one of the first documentations that I know of from diagnosis to death. Well, I also liked that it documents the challenges of caring for people with Alzheimer's, dementia, Pick's disease Mm -hmm. in this insane COVID time. Yes. I am so grateful. My mom fell, broke her leg and passed away on March 31st, 2020, because I would always take her out. Her joy was to watch kids. I always mm-hmm. joke that we were the creepy old ladies watching the kids. We'd watch the kids at the pool. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> sometimes people would like look at me like, mm, I don't know if you're a little odd, but that's what she loved. She was a mom. She was a grandma. Yeah. So what brought her joy. And that's, yeah. you know, we'd, we'd go to different parks because I would get bored, but that wasn't an option. And going in the care home wasn't an option. Here we are. It's been almost eight months since she died. And, you know, I've been in it. Yeah. It's like, I kind of laughed. My sister has a May birthday and I, you know, snarkily laughed to myself. He, 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 you know, you're, you have to have a COVID (laughs) birthday, but uh, you know, I'll probably be, you know, I'll be in the clear so much for that. I can't imagine what people are going through the ones who are still living with their loved one and may have kids at home still now too. So they have their parent with dementia and kids and working from home. I I just could not imagine that stress. Unfortunately, those people don't have time to document this insanity unless that's their job. One of the things after my father passed away and we put my mom in the care residence, it dawned on me because he had, he always did the typical annual Christmas photo and he'd, they'd come over to my studio and we would do the photo with them and the dog. Between my mom and the dog, it was like, Ugh. and my dad wasn't physically flexible and cooperative, if that makes sense to uh-huh. people. You know, I would try to get him in certain positions that were more flattering. And, you know, being my dad, he just blew me away. So it's like, no, 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 I'm going to sit like this. Then I had to coax a smile out of my mom. Being a creative and being an artist, I always wanted to do something different, which of yeah. course was a stupid way to think, but we didn't get that in 2016. And it dawned on me not long after we moved her that if I didn't keep photographing mm-hmm. her, she would effectively disappear from family history after he died. Now she died three years and basically a month after him. So You know, there wasn't a huge amount of history, but there was enough. And I've been looking back on it Thanksgiving last year. And I had my mom, I had our oldest dog. It's like this year has just been too much, but it's just, it's important. And I'm really glad after my mom passed away, you, you, and I did this with the dog too. It's like, I went and looked at all the pictures I took of her and all of the little videos, even the ones that I took, like we we were talking about offline, I think about the videos of the non-flattering. Yeah. And the ugly, the yeah, ugly side. Yeah. And I, I looked at them and, and I really had a sense of peace because I'm like, I really, really, really had a lot of success in bringing her joy. Cause of course, after people die, you're like, you know, she was really, really hard at the end and mm-hmm. we moved and there was just tired and stress. And one time, she, like not long before she fell and broke her leg, she told me to drop dead. 
she clawed my husband, drew blood on him. That was his last interaction with her. So I've read recently that when we have an event or, you know, something happens, if it ends on a negative note, the mm. whole thing is tainted. And, mm. and so I'm trying to help some people through some situations where it starts off negative, but they're able to distract or deflect yeah. or, you know, turn the event around or distraction is a key word. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's some people I'm talking to that their parents just yell and swear at them and they're just very ugly. And that's really hard to deal with. I mean, yeah. I know I got it a little bit, but not nearly what these guys are dealing with. And this, I guess one gal just went off just, you know, she'd had the, the straw broke the camel's back. She vented all of her stress and frustration and sadness at her poor mother. Mm -hmm. And her mother actually stood there and took it, which is pretty surprising for somebody with a broken brain. Mm -hmm. And so it ended on a positive note. So after reading this social media post, I said, when, when we have an event that's positive, but it ends negative, they remember that negative feeling. So take yeah. away from this that it started off very ugly, understandably, mm -hmm. but it ended with some understanding and hugs and I love yous. So your mom is going to remember that part of it. She's going to mm -hmm. forget that you are ugly you know, mm -hmm. and I don't say that as a negative thing because trust me, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very difficult not to be sometimes. Yeah. So I was trying to let her know that, you know, maybe not try to vent so harsh at your mom again, but you didn't do permanent damage to tie this back into what you guys are doing. Yes. The pictures can be a little challenging to look at. I mean, they're definitely not, they're not beautiful all the time, they're but they flowers they, and rainbows. No, unfortunately, but it, it really does help you know, educate the population and inform and make it less scary. And I think yeah. that's super important. Thank you. I tell people that I lost my parents, both of them within three months, and it was tough. I was 43 and I handled it better than I ever thought I could. I felt such appreciation. And I was so grateful that I had the parents that I had and that they were together that I celebrated them more than I mourned them. Never in my dreams did I think that I could have done that, but my parents were the most giving people I knew and not just to my brother, sister, and I, but to their community around them and their friends and family, they were very, very giving people. And I like to think that they taught me the gift of giving, and this is my gift to them. Well, it's a wonderful gift. How can people that are hearing this story for the first time, how can they connect with you guys, help you guys? Yeah. So please go on our website, which is bobanddianefund.org. We're on all social media. It's the same, Bob and Diane Fund. And if you are into photography and you're working on a project, please, please apply for the grant. We usually open submissions end of August, early September, and we announce the winner every November for National Caregivers Month. So, you know, please consider that. If you just appreciate it, share it on your social medias and wherever. And if you know of a place to get it published, you can reach out to me. My contact information's on there. I 
do work really hard to get this work published worldwide. If you want to give, we are a 501c3 and it's the end of the year. If you need a tax write-off, there is a donation section on the website that is always appreciated. So we could just keep giving more and bringing more visual awareness to this disease. Terrific. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. I enjoyed talking to you when we first met over Zoom and this time again. Head over to the Bob and Diane Funds website where you can see all of the past grant winners. Their images are touching as well as visually instructive. You can share many of the photos on your social media and perhaps this will help your friends and neighbors understand your unique responsibilities. As a photographer, I would love to know if these photographs inspire you in any way. At the very least, I hope you are moved to document some of the good days your loved one will have. To me, it's important not to leave them out of your family's visual history. The realization that after my dad died, it would be up to me to continue documenting my mom so that we would have a visual record of her was important. The end result for me was an understanding of just how much I did for her and how much joy she had on our kid watching adventures. I know you can do the same. I will have some posts that include this year's winner, Jamal Shamasazarin. I'm your host, Jennifer Fink, and I'll be in your ears again next Tuesday.